0: Creative Babble. John Browning is used to getting random calls from strangers.
1: This happens at least once a week, and they say to me that they have supernatural powers, that they are a vampire, they want to meet other vampires they want me to lead them to them, and that they, they live quite a long time, and I'm just like, I don't even respond to those emails.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, how can you tell the difference? How can you tell if someone's for real or trying to pull your leg?
1: Well, with with her, it was very sincere.
0: John Browning is talking about a woman we're gonna call Christy. She wasn't looking to be found.
1: Not even her partner knew what she was.
0: Christy confessed to John Browning that she has an uncontrollable urge. An urge that starts with a hunger that no food can satisfy, a thirst that only one thing can quench. Christy claims that she is a real vampire, but her secret could never get out.
1: She was in the middle of a court battle with her ex-husband for custody of their child. And she knew she had to keep her need for, for energy on the down low because if her husband got wind of it, that he would use that in court against her and she would probably not get to see her her child, or at least not without court supervision.
0: But why John Browning? Why would someone like Christie turn to a random stranger for help? You see, John Browning has become a kind of expert in so-called real vampires. He's studied them for years. In fact, he's considered one of the go-to guys on the topic. For part of his doctoral dissertation, John Browning studied, observed and interviewed dozens of people who self-identify as vampires. On today's episode, we're going to talk about real people who claim to be vampires. I'm Javier Leva and this is Pretend. Picture this, a foggy evening, the whisper of secrets in the air, and an invitation to step back into the glamorous and mysterious 1920s. That's the backdrop of June's Journey, the game that's been keeping me glued to my phone lately. Instead of doom scrolling on social media, I am actually playing the part of June Parker, a daring detective with a personal mission to solve her sister's murder. And let me tell you, it is a roller coaster of emotions and puzzles. What's to love? Well, first of all, the thrill of hunting for hidden objects. I'm a sucker for these kinds of games. My first question is: Are vampires real?
1: Well, I'm asked that quite often, and the first thing I ask them in, in response is: Well, it depends on how you define a vampire. If you mean something that is supernatural or lives beyond the normal, you know, human range, turns into a bat, has fangs that can appear at will, those kinds of things, then of course that's that's not real.
0: For now, let's just eliminate some of the cliches, right? So okay. you mentioned some of them, right? Right. That they're immortal, but real vampires, do crucifixes have any effect on them?
1: When it comes, if you're referring to the the, the human or real vampire community, crosses do not have any effect on them. In fact, I've known quite a few real vampires who wear crosses or who might even be practicing uh, Christians.
0: What about garlic? Well,
1: garlic, I've met uh, uh, a few Italian (laughs) vampires and they love garlic. I've interviewed now many, 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 and and none of them, to my knowledge or memory, do I recall ever saying they had an aversion to garlic.
0: And what about, can modern day vampires go out into the sun? My first vampire community was in New Orleans.
1: And uh, in New Orleans, quite a few of my vampires actually slept during the day and had jobs that took them out mostly at night and so all of our meetings were always at night when it came to the vampires that i studied in buffalo there was there was no really major conception of sleeping during the day and working at night
0: All right, so we just ran down a list of some of the things that we all think about when we think about vampires. Mm-hmm. But if they don't have any aversion to crucifixes, if garlic doesn't bother them, and they go out into the sun and they're not immortal, then what then what makes them real vampires?
1: It's a great question. When we hear the, the term uh, real vampire, to some people, it comes across as a misnomer because they expect that if this community is are calling themselves uh, real vampires, uh, that they must be quote unquote, the real thing, something you see in mythology. You know, that turns into bats or lives forever or comes out at night and doesn't cast reflections.
0: For two years, John Browning walked around the streets of the French Quarter in New Orleans recording interviews with people who claimed to be real vampires. Yes, a real-life interview with a vampire, just like in the Anne Rice books and movies. But come on, vampires aren't
1: real, right? Initially, when I heard this, I thought, well, obviously, you know, you were a huge vampire fan or a huge Dracula fan, or you were, you know, a fan of vampire fiction, but it turns out, and this was true across all of the dozens and dozens and dozens of vampires I've interviewed, is they weren't these huge fanatics of vampire fiction.
0: But Browning insists that the people he studied over the years aren't role-playing or performing cosplay. He says this isn't something that they could turn on or off.
1: But what really makes them a vampire is that this holds true with with every real vampire that I've interviewed. They begin by telling me the story of how just generally after puberty, they begin to feel like very low energy, very sluggish. No matter how well they eat, if they exercise, if they take, you know, as a teenager, take protein shakes, vitamins, doesn't matter. They just feel really sluggish. And often, quite by accident, they'll come in contact with blood or they might see a package of meat that their parent is about to cook and there might be some blood-tainted liquid in it. They'll have this natural compulsion to want to try the blood. And when they do, it suddenly makes them feel like they, like everyone else. It makes them feel like they're at an optimal level of energy.
0: From my research, those who need blood claim that they can't deny their cravings. To go without blood is like depriving yourself of water or air. They claim that the side effects are excruciating. Some say that they feel symptoms that mimic depression. Others say that their health deteriorates or they feel lethargic. Others compare it to having a cold all the time. Some say that the feeling is much more primitive, like a starving animal. Some claim their mind gets foggy and they could become aggressive.
1: That is what defines the real vampire community, is this need to, this biological, physiological need to have blood or energy in order to feel energized or feel like the people around them.
0: But what if these people are not vampires? What if there's a simple explanation for all of this? Perhaps they have some sort of emotional or mental health condition?
1: When I first heard these stories, my first thought was obviously it's psychosomatic. With these sanguinarian vampires, they realize they need blood, they take the blood, and they feel like they are a vampire beforehand, and that's what is giving them this, this new, you know, found energy. They all had the same story. And I thought, well, at least I'll probably find out that they're just all big fans of vampire fiction, because at least that might add to this psychosomaticism. But it turns out you probably know more about vampire and vampire fiction and film than a lot of the real vampires I've met. And once I shadowed them for at least a year and they got, they became comfortable with me and it got to the point where we would discuss the feeding practices more particularly because it's something that real vampires don't often talk about as much. They especially do not like to talk about who their donors are, because for the vampires, if they're outed to the public, you know, it's bad for them. It's bad for the reputation. It's bad for them socially. But When it comes to their donors, uh, if they lose those connections, then they have to search for another one. And that becomes
0: a problem. So how do these real vampires get their blood?
1: They would show me the steps that they take when they're extracting the blood. Some sanguinarians will use medical tubing and sterile packs and sterile needles to extract the blood and into a receptacle from which they'll drink it right away. Some sanguinarians will take a a sterile uh, scalpel or sharp object out of a sterile pack and they will clean an area of the skin and they'll make an incision and they'll feed directly from the wound. And how often they do it usually depends on the vampire and the quantity that they take.
0: I've seen videos of sanguinarian vampires feeding directly off of another human being. It's strange, to say the least, and not at all what I was expecting. Also, I expected them to pierce the skin using their prosthetic fangs. But that's not the case either. The videos I've seen, the vampire slices open a person's skin, right above their shoulder blade and sucks the blood as it dribbles out from beneath the skin.
1: A sanguinarian vampire won't just be walking the street like a New Orleans down Bourbon Street and find some homeless person and say, Hey, you want to make 20 bucks? Let me drink your blood. It's often someone they have to get to know first. Someone who doesn't even know they might be a real vampire. And eventually, when they get to know them well enough, it, sometimes it's a friend. They introduce the idea to them that they're a real vampire. And then perhaps soon thereafter, they might introduce the idea of taking some of their blood. They're sometimes paid monetarily. Sometimes they're paid through sexual favors. Some sanguinarian vampires have to feed every day. Some of them just a couple times a week. And there are some that I've met that just take blood a couple of times a month. They can also go to specialty butcher shops and get cow's blood. Real vampires aren't necessarily looking to be found. They're very, very private people.
0: They could have been your suburban dad or your suburban mom. Yeah.
1: Right? If you had to pick one out of a room, you probably would pick one of them, even if they weren't wearing the trappings. But for the most part, many of them with their day jobs or night jobs, they could literally be anyone else. They could be a store clerk, uh, an antique dealer, someone who climbs telephone poles to fix wires. I mean, all kinds uh, of different positions that you would never, ever suspect. And this is why I tell people all the time that you probably work (laughs) with a, a real vampire and don't even know it, or you pass one on the street every day without ever knowing it
0: so what happens if they don't drink the blood i mean what what happens to them then
1: if they don't consume blood they feel begin to feel as they did just after puberty they feel sluggish even though they might go to the doctor and the doctor's like there's nothing wrong with you we don't find any kind of virus
0: and when you were doing your research did you try to rule out other options and look at it from a medical point of view Maybe they have some sort of disease. I read about porphyria, which right. is a rare blood disease that leaves its victims dangerously sensitive to sunlight right. and with disfigured fingers and faces and gums.
1: Porphyria is very, very rare. If they had had porphyria, I would have noticed it right away. And for the majority of them said, well, yeah, of course. But they always say no or that you just, you know, it's psychosomatic. Some of the other vampires, they've learned from others that there's no point in going and asking a doctor because they're not going to find anything. And the doctor does a full blood test, and all of it comes back normal, not even iron deficiency.
0: So, are you convinced that these people who are claiming to be vampires or saying that they had these vampire type tendencies are real? Well, you know, by
1: the time I started doing my ethnographic work in in New Orleans in late 2009, I knew I was going to think they were crazy or cuckoo or people who just read too many vampire works of fiction and just went one step beyond me and just sort of drinking blood because they liked vampires. And when it came down to it and I kept interviewing different people from different backgrounds, different social classes, different religions, different sexualities, the stories were all very consistent. And this is not just people in New Orleans, this was people in Atlanta and people in Buffalo. I definitely believe that they're experiencing what they're experiencing.
0: John Browning spent years following these vampires, observing their behavior. But eventually, he crossed the line from being a third-party researcher to a participant in their feeding rituals. John Browning befriended a self-proclaimed vampire who goes by the name of Belfassar. There's a video of one of their encounters. He made an incision on your shoulder blade, just like you described. That's right. And he began sucking off of your shoulder blade. It, was that your first time doing that?
1: I've been a, a donor. I have to remember at least three times. That was that was the latest one, though. The first time I gave, had blood taken to uh, by a sanguinarian is, uh, I think about an hour or two later, I suddenly began to feel extremely weak, like just completely zapped of energy. And he didn't even drink that much blood. It's not like I could claim that, you know, it's from lack of or taking of blood. But later after we were done with the feeding and we went to a local restaurant to sit at a table together, I mentioned how I was feeling. And suddenly I had all of these, these faces at, at my table, nodding and saying, yeah, that, that typically happens after, after a feeding.
0: When we come back, my interview with a real vampire. So, Father Sebastian, right? Is that how you like to be addressed?
2: That's my official stage name.
0: Father Sebastian is a modern-day vampire. So modern that he's even drinking a Starbucks during our interview.
2: And Father Sebastian likes Starbucks. (laughs) Blood-free Starbucks? Uh, No, pumpkin spice.
0: Pumpkin spice. (laughs) It's the best. I love it.
2: One second, I got to change my fangs. Oh, no problem. Keep talking.
0: (laughs) I'll, I'll wait. I'll wait for you. I'll wait. While Father Sebastian is changing into his new fangs, I should uh, probably tell you his origin story. You see, when he was young, he's what they would call a closeted vampire, someone who was into the culture and the lore, but wasn't exactly out of the coffin, so to speak. He didn't really start exploring the goth subculture until he was in high school.
2: My girlfriend wanted fangs for the prom in 1994. Her name was Dawn. She was a werewolf a witch and a vampire
0: you said she was a werewolf a witch and a vampire i just want to make sure i heard that right
2: yeah that's what she was she was my first vampire girlfriend nice and we had a great time we went to the vampire clubs in manhattan we got fangs together on the 3rd of november 1993 to plan our prom and It was really cool. We were both dorky little kids exploring the vampire world. I got my fangs with her, and we went to a vampire event in Manhattan, which was a Vampire the Masquerade event, and my whole life changed because of those fangs.
0: And this is around the time that Father Sebastian started wearing prosthetic fangs.
2: And people kept asking me, where'd you get your fangs? Where'd you get your fangs? They're amazing. I love your fangs. My grandfather was an orthodontist, and I went to my grandfather and asked him to teach me how to make the fangs, and he said, no, I'm not a Satanist. And I'm like, what if fangs have to do with Satan? And my grandfather was just like, no, I'm not gonna teach how to make fangs.
0: His grandfather wouldn't teach him, so he became a dental technician and learned to make fangs himself.
2: These are 3D printed fangs. Oh, nice. I send you a kit at home where I make an impression like this and the fangs fit perfectly.
0: Do you consider yourself a vampire?
2: <laughs> I've done everything there is to do in the vampire culture. I've, I've, all the different tribes of vampires, from role player to lifestyler to scholar, I've done it all. I've experimented with everything. I follow the old school vampire tradition, where you spell vampire with a Y, mm-hmm. B-A-M-P-Y-R-E. Okay, and that is the tradition of vampirism that is, differentiates the lifestyle and the practice of vampirism, of identifying as a vampire. And a vampire with an eye is the legend and myth.
0: I've spoken to some people like John Browning that, that claim that there are real vampires in the sense that they actually crave blood there are psychic vampires that can suck your energy. Yes. And these are people that are not doing cosplay that these are people that actually feel like they have a natural urge, this animal instinct to to drink blood. Would you consider yourself a real vampire?
2: I ex- well, I don't consider them real vampires. Ah. All right, real vampires like Lestat or Dracula? the different types of people that identify as vampires are much, much more diverse than a lot of people think. If you wanna talk about people with blood fetish or need, to, uh, they believe that they need to have blood to survive, they exist, but are they real vampires?
0: That's the question.
2: There's no such thing as Lestat or Dracula, as far as I know.
0: The concept of real vampires, in, in a sense, is not real, right? Because there are no real vampires. So who are these sanguinarians?
2: Sanguinarians are people that identify with the need to drink blood. And there's different motivations. Let me make it really clear. There's no medical or psychological evidence whatsoever that there are people that need to drink blood for their mental, physical, or spiritual health. There is none. People who identify as as sanguinary and vampires are extremely rare. Okay. And the majority of people that go on TV and claim to be sanguine vampires are doing it for their 15 minutes of fame. I mean, I, I have done blood play with my lovers on fully consensual things where we've used Lancelets and I drink in their blood. Okay. But that is a kink and that is erotic and that is sacred and that is ritual. But it's a fetish. It, it, it is a fetish, but there are people that truly believe they need to drink blood to survive. Let's, let's look at the origins of sanguine vampires. There's been blood drinking in every culture um, from Christianity to African tribes to Native American tribes. And is that vampiric? In modern sense, yes. Vampires drinking blood is a very modern thing. Okay. So people that identify as sanguine or sanguine vampires. have every right to believe in what they feel is right, as long as they do it legally, safely, sanely, and consensual, and not at my events.
0: Father Sebastian hangs around with a lot of self-proclaimed vampires. He says that the only thing these so-called blood-sucking vampires are craving is attention from journalists like me. He says that the truth is that Sanguinarian vampires are in the minority. From his perspective, most vampires love life, dressing up, and just want to have fun.
2: We're celebrating our 25th anniversary, and those are the Endless Night Vampire Ball events, which I started to be able to let my fang clients, because I'm a dental technician, gather and dress up and have a place to go to wear their fangs. And we just did uh, our first event in Salem, and we had 700 people, and it was really beautiful
0: and and out of all those people most of them are there because they feel like they're part of this community and
2: they no, they feel like they want to dress up and wear fangs and see good entertainment and meet amazing people
0: And if you're listening to this and all of a sudden you're jonesing for some human blood, I have some bad news for you. There are a few things you need to know. That's after the break. Whether these so-called vampires are real or it's just a fetish, it's none of my concern. What really disturbs me is that there might be people out there who are sucking each other's blood, and that could be a real problem. In fact, I found this webpage on vampires.com that talks about the best veins to tap into if you want to feast on human blood. And there was no disclaimer on this site. There was no haha, just kidding, we don't really do this. These were real instructions for people to follow if they wanted to take part in this very dangerous ritual. But how dangerous is it? So I called my brother-in-law, Al, who is not a vampire, but an actual doctor, to get his take. Let me explain to you what I'm doing. So there's these so-called real vampires and and not all of them are sanguinarian you know like where they actually drink blood but some of them are okay and i i found this one website where it was ridiculous let me pull it up because i, I want to get your take on it but the types of veins and stuff that they're saying hey you you should tap into this vein and it just seems so <laughs> so freaking dangerous why don't you tell me what what your um what your take on that is
3: Well, my first concern with tapping a vein, whether to just drain blood or to have blood to drink, would be the risk of infection. The number two concern, if you were really serious about this and drew large amounts of blood over a very short period of time, you'd become anemic. Uh, You wouldn't have enough blood and that would be a problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there seems to be, like, no positive side for the donor, for whoever's giving out the blood. So this article on Vampire.com lists several veins that you could tap into. They say that the perfect spot is the external carotid artery. You know, that spot between your ear and your shoulder.
3: The external carotid artery. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> never in my mind would I would I dream of accessing that blood vessel to get blood? So so if you think from a medical perspective, if you injure a vein, it's going to bleed. But if you hold compression on it, it'll stop. The flip side is that if you go into an artery, so very high pressure system, that's what's pumping the blood to all of your organs. And so... If you enter an artery, that's when you see like in the horror movies when there's like blood spewing across the room and hitting the wall.
0: Right. Like a Quentin Tarantino movie where just a fountain of blood Exactly. Yeah. So
3: if you if you decide to get an artery, so yeah, you'll get tons of blood, but it it's a high pressure system. The internal carotid is what supplies blood flow to your brain. So that would be a complete no-go on that. You wouldn't even want to think about it. But the external carotid arteries are the branches, the arterial branches that are in your neck and head that go to things like your facial muscles. So, yeah, the 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 external carotid artery would would give you plenty of blood, but it it probably wouldn't be it it wouldn't be a wise choice of uh, spot to get blood from. I mean, partly because you would be, you know, having to, cut into your head or neck to try to find it. And you would need a pretty solid knowledge of anatomy to even be able to find the right spot to get it. Right. And there's so many nerves and other things that are in the head and neck area, you don't have a lot of wiggle room to mess up, I'll put it that way.
0: For me, the way I visualize it, that's the classic place where a vampire would bite you, right? Right? In the, the neck absolutely. between absolutely
3: Right below the ear? Right below the ear and the neck. That's the classic spot that a vampire is going to drain blood. Now, the usual thing (laughs) that I think there is your jugular vein. So big, huge vein, low pressure system. So that's usually, you know, when you think about a vampire draining blood, you know, not that you think about it in the movie, but, oh, he bites the neck. Well, I usually think, okay, probably aiming for the jugular vein, that would give you a great bit of blood return because that's all your blood return from your from your head and neck going back centrally towards the heart. It's right there next to all the important arteries that are going to your brain. So that's, even though it's a classic location, it wouldn't be a wise spot for somebody to try to access to get blood from. Unless, of course, you're a vampire. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and if that blood is going straight into your heart, if you had any type of bacterial infection or Anything in your mouth, that would go straight into your heart, right? Right. My brother-in-law, Al, says that if untreated, that infection could actually lead to having your heart valve replaced. And if you don't treat the infection in time, it could spread throughout your whole body. This is typically seen with heroin and opioid addicts.
3: So it could be a really dangerous thing.
0: Yeah, and th- th- this website also says the, and I'm going to butcher this vein's name, but the median cubital vein.
3: Okay, so probably median cubital vein. They're
0: basically talking about the vein where they draw blood right by your elbow, right?
3: Exactly, and that's the that is the classic spot for you to drain blood. I mean, if you go in and you give blood uh, for lab tests, or if you're donating blood, you know, at a blood bank, that's the vein they're going to use. And so that's a very common spot to try to access. And and that makes a little bit more sense if you were along the vampire spectrum to <laughs> access a vein in your arm is going to be less dangerous than accessing any sort of blood supply in your neck. It makes a little bit more sense. But once again, the, the people that do it medically are doing it with sterile technique. They're doing it so that you're not going to get an infection out of it.
0: Another artery that they recommend is the ulnar artery, which is in in the wrist, the one where you take your pulse.
3: Right. And once again, the problem with that, it's arterial. You could risk losing fingers out of that.
0: And then the last one, they say the femoral vein. I'm guessing that's the one behind the knee.
3: No, that's going to be up higher. That's going to be at the level of your groin. So if you think about like where your, your trunk meets your legs,
0: Al says that this vein could give you tons of blood.
3: Yeah, you could get tons of blood from that. But once again, if you messed up and you had a bleeding complication, you could risk losing a lot of blood in a short period of time. And plus, I mean, that's that's kind of a spot where... That's a little bit too close to things that are personal, where you would probably want to go in trying to get blood from there. Yeah, least, yeah. And if you're a vampire, you know, maybe maybe that, you get your thrills out of
0: that. Yeah, maybe you're into that. And then uh, another place I've heard is uh, some of them uh, try to find discrete areas like the shoulder blade, and they don't go for a vein or an artery, but they just make like a, an incision or a slit on the shoulder blade and yeah. they scrub it with alcohol and i think that they, they i guess they put you know listerine to to disinfect their mouth
3: <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yeah. even if you tried listerine to disinfect your mouth so listerine is going to cut down on some bad breath and maybe it'll kill a tiny percentage of the germs but your mouth is is got Billions of germs in it. So you're not even going to begin to touch the amount of bacteria that are in there. And so, yeah, you're going to get bacteria into whoever the don- blood donor is in that situation. You're still going to be at a pretty good risk of developing an infection. So no, I, I wouldn't recommend that technique either.
0: So overall, what's your advice to these uh, sanguinarian vampires?
3: Um, I would I would discourage the practice done outside of a a person that had medical knowledge of how to do it safely and with a low risk of infection. I would I would discourage the practice. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's, that's a, I, you know what. Before I called you, that was my assumption, but I just wanted to kind of yeah. get a medical opinion behind it because it all sounded pretty crazy to me. So. Okay.
3: It does sound fairly crazy, and that's my personal bias because i I can see the risks of it from what could go wrong, but I can understand you know if that's somebody's thing, then you know hey, that's their thing but that's true,
0: but you could always go to the butcher and get some pig's blood or some cow's blood, right
3: of course. Oh no, that would be a very safe way to acquire obviously it wouldn't be you know if your particular thing is human blood, then you've kind of got a limited number of resources you can get that from, but no, through various ways you could any type of animal blood could be safely obtained, and if done correctly, would have a very low risk of causing a problem. You think about things like h i v and stuff like that.
0: I think most reasonable people would agree with everything you just said you know it's like the risk is not worth it. I was talking to this guy these these people who claim that they're real vampires and they have this urge you know to drink blood and all this stuff and if they don't drink blood their energy is low and all this stuff and I'm thinking maybe you're just anemic.
3: (laughs) You're either anemic. Okay. So that's a possibility. So you can get the urge to eat or drink unusual things. So that's, that's fairly common. The most common one you see is pica, uh, the people that eat clay. And it's usually a nutrient deficiency. You can see it sometimes in pregnant women. Uh, and they'll have the urge to, oh man, I need to eat some clay. So having a craving for, a substance that's not nutritious i mean that, that medically you see that um craving for blood a little bit more unusual it does make you wonder hey are you anemic and is that part of it or or is it more of uh, something that's more from uh inside your head standpoint of hey i've determined that this is something that i need or a psychosomatic
0: but, you know where they 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 think it works it's almost like a placebo right? effect
3: exactly like a placebo effect so if you have become convinced. That whatever, whether it's blood or a medicine or whatever, cures you. Well, your brain saying, "Hey, you took that. You're going to start feeling better naturally."
0: You know, we just had a lot of fun talking about tapping into veins and arteries from the vantage point of vampires feeding on blood. But if you remove the word vampire from our conversation, it starts sounding like a much more familiar crisis. Self-harm. And it's not uncommon for some of us with depression or anxiety to inflict pain on ourselves. So, if you're listening to this, there are different places that you can seek help if you suffer from self-harm. First, talk to a pro. You can use online counselors like BetterHelp, a real-life therapist, or even reach out to a friend. There's also a crisis line where you can text and talk to an actual human for free. Text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. Again, text HOME to 741-741. I'll have a list of numbers you can text from my international friends. The numbers are in the show notes. you know this song that you're listening to right now? is called Life Affirming. And I also used another track by an indie artist that goes by the name of Safrasine. If you like this music, you should check it out. I'll have a link to the music in the show notes. The artist is a great friend of mine and you should really check him out. And one last update. You know, I have another podcast called Criminal Conduct. Well, if you haven't checked it out, there's been a huge development in season two's case, one that no one saw coming. And we're going to have an update episode pretty soon. So if you haven't listened to season two of Criminal Conduct, you have to check it out because this one floored me. I'll be back in two weeks, this time with a series on hypnosis. What's hypnosis? Is it bullshit? We'll find out.
3: Created